0: When you're building a culture of belonging, every word counts. That's why Textio brings the world's most advanced language insights into your hiring and employer brand content. Our industry-leading approach to artificial intelligence and machine learning provides the tools needed to find more diverse candidates. In short, Textio builds more equitable workspaces, guiding businesses and writing more inclusive job posts. And we're building on that success by bringing even more products to the market for all people who share our belief that language matters. Words have power, and at Textio, we harness that power to increase the access and availability of value-driven work for everyone.
1: Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast, where you'll not only get the insight to help you transition your career, but we'll have raw, unfiltered conversations about equity and access in corporate America. I'm your host, Tristan Layfield of Career Clarity Solutions, formerly Layfield Resume Consulting. And today, I have the honor of having Dr. Clive Barnett III on the podcast. So, Dr. Clive Barnett III is the founder and executive director of Discover Without Barriers, Um, which is an education, let me start that over. Dr. Clyde Barnett III is the founder and executive director of Discover Without Barriers, an education and leadership consulting company. As a consultant, he directs qualitative research projects for K-12 schools, colleges and universities, and government agencies, while providing leadership development and professional learning. As an educator, Dr. Barnett serves as a faculty member and director of the Undergraduate Leadership Program in the Department of Leadership and Counseling at Eastern Michigan University. And Dr. Barnett's experiences in education have positioned him to work towards transformative change and he hopes to influence such change through teaching agency and advocacy centering student and community voices and enacting equitable policies and practices so welcome to the show clyde or should i say dr barnett
2: Oh please.
1: <laughs> oh please. <laughs> so uh, well, thank you the for
2: re- having me. And and that sounds that sounds a lot more interesting than uh, what actually happens on a day to day for me.
1: <laughs> look, <laughs> look, he he, he playing coin right now, okay? Oh so, no. let, let, <laughs> let, let me tell really y'all a little bit.
0: Let me tell
2: y'all.
1: <laughs> let me tell y'all a little bit about how we know each other. So, uh, Dr. Barnett and I um, are actually best friends. So, we met what 2014, 2013, um, yeah. um, and we have been friends ever since. And so. We sit here, we chop it up all the time on the bullshit that corporate America has going on, the bullshit that higher education has going on. And so when I thought about this podcast, I was like, there's no better person to bring on to read these places than my best friend. Like, this is just, this is just perfect. So um, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, friend.
2: Well, thank you for having me. Let's cut up. Let's cut, Let, up. let's cut it <laughs> up. Let's cut it up.
1: Okay, so I like to always start with a couple of questions just to get the, the sort of thought processes flowing. And, and we sort of like to keep it a little standard across all of the guests here. So mm-hmm. the first question I have for you is a fill-in-the-blank question, right? Which is mm-hmm. the state of higher ed job market right now
2: is blank. What is that? Ooh, I have like five explicit um so a high, say them all hot ass mess cumbersome um lacking behind right like i mean you could just kind of take your pick Ooh. i don't know if this was a multiple Ooh. choice question but i made it one
1: Look, that is okay <laughs> we're gonna take all those answers so so why do you feel that way What 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 sort of informs those opinions
2: well, you know, you mentioned, so I do this research and work across all these spaces and what is pretty prominent, especially this semester, as we mostly return back um, to an in-person format is this desire to rush back to everything that we were doing prior to March, 2020. Um, and so, you know, many of us, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about like the, the activists and scholars and, you know, other practitioners that have known That this is a hot mess well before the pandemic, Um, but the pandemic has further revealed for people who maybe weren't so aware of how jacked up things were that think this doesn't work for us. Like, this format doesn't work for us. It doesn't work for students, it doesn't work for staff, and it certainly doesn't work for those seeking employment at, you know, these thousands of colleges that we have across the United States. Um, and so we've got this, this cumbersome process, this desire to rush back to something that wasn't working well for us. Um, while also competing with people making, you know, big offers and accommodating our needs in ways that higher education just won't budge. You know, we want to be in person. This, this, you know, anti-Zoom meeting, the, the, the lack of flexibility is really holding up progress and, and it's, it's kind of moving backwards. You know, we have students that work full-time and have you know families and things and so in some ways this virtual format provided some flexibility that they just simply didn't have prior to the pandemic and for whatever reason that pisses us off <laughs> you know so we want to be able to control we want to be able to control people and tell them how they should learn and what's best for them while also preaching equity so it's like is it Uchi Wally or is it one mic if if we If we're thinking about equity, which is what people need and and the responding to what people need, then how are we not doing that and taking away opportunities that are most flexible to them?
1: Go the hell off then. Yeah. <laughs> From what I've heard and what I've seen with a lot of people in higher education, I completely agree. It's a hot ass mess. I've had more people in higher education come to me trying to exit than trying to find uh, advancement opportunities in this space. Um, and I think that really speaks to where the higher ed job market is right now. Yes, there may be opportunities out there, but many people are not taking them up on those opportunities because higher ed wants to revert back to quote unquote normal.
2: Whatever Whatever that is, whatever (laughs) that
1: was, and and a normal that already wasn't working. So, why are we reverting back when this was an opportunity for innovation and opportunity for creativity, right? Um, So, yeah, I 100% agree. Now, even though, you know, the job market in higher ed is a complete shit show. What tips would you have for people who are trying to find jobs in higher education right now, right? Mm. So you found you found multiple jobs in higher education. You've been on the job search before in this space. What, do you, what tips do you have for mm-hmm. people who are sort of in that area?
2: I would say ask a lot of questions and do a lot of research. So the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, the the murder and execution of George Floyd that happened during the pandemic that. For whatever reason, rippled through everybody, you know, we had this racial awake it, it seems like every, you know, five years of white people catch up, it's a it's a racial awakening when many of us know that this is not new. And so mm-hmm. now all these companies have this commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, and they've got their statements and they've got the three black people that go to their school on the website, right?
0: <laughs> Ask
2: questions about how, <laughs> yes, yeah, the three ask questions about how they actually responded to this situation on their campuses or wherever you're it Cause some, some you know, institutions are in this this hybrid and co-op format. Like, you know, you think about the format of the institution you're applying at and how they actually intangible action steps responded to the needs of their community. So it did faculty members get, you know, relief time for mental health and wellness did we check in with the needs and desires of students how are they tending to what you even if you think about you know you you got lots of options right now so if corporate spaces are offering certain packages for the same job and the same amount of work then how are you using and leveraging that in your negotiations and your conversations in the higher ed space so there's there's a lot of opportunities um, to really bring forth and, and get what you need out of these positions because there you can kind of spit and hit a job you know people are leaving left you mentioned it people are leaving left and right you know I think about the student affairs profession specifically there's a whole mass exodus because salaries are not moving um, positions are not changing and more work is being piled on so you're really in a position if this is work that is meaningful to you. You're really in a position to get all that you need from these institutions in ways that they really kind of have to respond to. You know, they made all these promises. Where are they? So uh, that's that's my biggest piece of advice. Understand what it is that they've done, what they've committed to and how they follow through on those things
1: yeah everybody talked a good game when that happened everybody came out with their statements and you know um, you know added that that one minority or black person to their boards or to their hiring committees or to their whatever Um, but what other actual steps had they actually taken hold their feet to the fire and figure out what's going on I think it's going to really show people um, what that institution really does are they are they an institution about action or are they institution about looking Good, right? Um, and Absolutely. I think oftentimes we find in higher education that many of these institutions mm-hmm. really just care about their reputation. They don't really care about the things that they say they care about. They're just doing Absolutely. it because it makes them look good. Right? It, yeah, That's and we so don't good. want
2: bad press. We, we would rather you know instead of doing instead of not doing bad, we just don't want to look bad. Right? Like it's just, yeah, it just right it's just exactly it just stays there. And you, I think about you know all these institutions that have a commitment to hiring. So many uh, I think specifically about the faculty line, you have so many institutions mm-hmm. we want to hire forty new faculty of color in five years, and it's like i I think that's awesome, but what are they stepping into because if those those forty student uh, per, people of color are not the sole correspondents sole correspondent for all things equity what is your institution doing and when that 40 push back on what you're doing are you prepared to respond in ways that can move the institution forward or are you just going to push us out as you always have right like those are the kind of questions we need to have you got options you can go elsewhere and i know people who literally their salaries have doubled and tripled for the same amount of work in these higher ed spaces, you know, and when they leave these higher ed spaces, the, 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 the salaries have tripled and they can work from home. So you can stay at home with your baby, with your kids, with whatever you got, with your dog, whatever, your plants, whatever you got, you can stay at home <laughs> in peace and not deal with you know, the, the uh, water fountain talk and, you know, the side comments and the awkward meeting where people don't want to talk and they don't want to say anything when they know things are problems and they come at you at the end <laughs> and say, I really appreciate your voice. I'm not bitter or yep. anything, you know. <laughs> Just, no, no, not at all. Not at Mm-mm. all. Mm-mm. That's never happened to you. From, no, I'm not speaking from any personal experience at all of that. No, but rather than deal with all of that, you have options now and you have a lot of people that I talk to that enter higher ed they have master's degrees they have doctorates, you know, they've got student loan debt out the. you know what? So in thinking about that, people have to make the decisions that are best for them. And if institutions are not responding to that, you can go elsewhere.
1: Yeah, you can absolutely. go elsewhere. 100%. One hundred percent. You know those those commitments to hiring. You know thirty new faculty of color and all that stuff. You know it. It really all is null and void if you bring those faculty into the same cultures that we we've had inside of these spaces. Right. Let's be real. What is higher education? Higher education has been an old boys club, an old white boys club. Right. Let's just be very real and call it what it is. Call it what it is. So so if you're really going to try and create equitable spaces and be equitable in who you're hiring you also need to provide resources and you need to shift your culture for them to be able to actually succeed and you need to understand what you're doing. You're bringing in mm-hmm. diverse perspectives, which means these people are not going to deal with the bullshit that you currently are, are putting no. up with, right? That's not going to happen, which means that you should not be penalizing them for challenging mm-hmm. you. You should be looking at why they're challenging you and addressing those issues that, that are coming up. And I think mm-hmm. I think oftentimes, once again, it's about looking good, right? The announcement of 30 new faculty of color is really great, but where's the announcement when all of them leave or all of them go? Right. because- you are not supporting them or because their research is too black or their research is too this or or they're too radical or they're too they're (laughs) too much they're trying to create too much change right where is the article about that because that's really what tends to happen when when they when they make these large overarching commitments but they don't change the institutional structure that they're bringing those people into right
2: absolutely Uh, and institutions (laughs) have to really grapple with the role that they play and how screwed up everything is. How, I mean, you know, a big, I'm reading this book called uh, The College Dropout Scandal. And one of the things that this book makes plain is that if you look at our graduation rates across the United States from these colleges and universities, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a wonder they're still open, <laughs> right? Like if, if you've got 20,000 students on your campus and you're only graduating 30% of them,
0: what is that saying
2: that and and then what role are you playing in this trillion dollar student loan debt crisis that you only have 30 percent of your students graduated how many of those students are leaving your institution your institution Mm -hmm. without a credential and debt Mm -hmm. that's on you that's on that's on the institution so you know it's not personal we have this you know we want to talk you know like i think about like white supremacy culture is all about niceness right they think that mm-hmm. you know you, you're not supposed to say certain things no we have to be really honest and exacting about what's happening and the outcomes of these institutions and that's what those 40 faculty members would come in and do they would be really mm-hmm. precise about the state of affairs and if institutions aren't ready to hear that then they're just gonna leave it's gonna, it's yeah. gonna, it's gonna the cycle will will continue Simply put,
1: 100%. And honestly, I, I love that you said they sort of have to be honest about what role they play in that because at the end of the day, what role do you play? It's a predatory one, right? Because Absolutely. you're you're advertising that coming to school is going to uh, help you get better jobs, but yet you're only graduating 30% of people, and then let's go further into the data that let's go further into the data that universities don't keep um, on mm-hmm. what their alum are actually doing. How long does it take them to actually enter the workforce? Are they entering the workforce in the spaces that they studied in? How are you helping them enter the workforce? And oftentimes we don't see that data because co- universities really don't track it. And it's honestly I firmly believe they don't track it simply because they know they aren't fulfilled fulfilling their promises Absolutely. right <laughs> um, um and so yes i do 100 percent agree with you we bring in those 30 faculty of color they're going to be the people to call those things out and, and you need mm-hmm. to be prepared to to take that lashing let's call it what mm-hmm. it is they go they're going to mm-hmm. get you you need to be prepared to take that lashing and figure out what we're going to do to make some change here so you're, you're um, so right about I, that look and then thinking no. about
2: like when, when we measure outcomes Right. We we, every, we we love in education to measure outcomes that fit our narrative or Oof. that we can easily b- place blame elsewhere except for on ourselves. So we can blame mm-hmm. the students, blame the communities, blame the staff. We're OK with presenting that data. But if the data mm-hmm. makes a claim that we're screwed up, we don't want we, we mm-hmm. don't track it. We won't post it, post it anywhere. We won't publish it. You've really got to dive in to lots of numbers to get to where you're trying to go.
1: Yeah. I tell everybody, honestly, I'm a testament to the fact that universities aren't doing their jobs. If universities were doing their jobs, what I do would not exist. I would not have to be a career coach. I would not have to be a resume writer. Because if universities were doing their jobs... They would be teaching people how to do this and helping them enter the workforce. So, Absolutely. yeah, one hundred percent. They aren't tracking the data. They aren't tracking the information because it's simply going to make them look bad. Now, we, uh-huh. you know, this is what we do, y'all. We get we get on a little tangent, so y'all don't <laughs> have to deal with it. Um, you can't tell. <laughs> this this how we are on a regular basis. Now, we, we're talking a little bit about this change idea, right? And I think one of the biggest changes that's happening across the board when it comes to um, sort of the workforce is that we are now seeing gen z enter the workforce right Mm -hmm. um and what gen z wants is very different from what millennials wanted what gen x wants Um, and so what and I, well, before I even ask the question, I know you also teach a lot of people who are in Gen Z, right? Yes, I in, uh, do. In the, in yes, I do. Space. So, <laughs> so you're you're intimately familiar with them, the way they think and process and what they do. So. What do you think recruiters in higher education need to know about attracting and retaining Gen Z talent? Because they're the next people that need to come into these student affairs roles. They're the next people who are going to be seeking those PhDs to become faculty members, right? They're the next people who are going to be taking over universities and um, and colleges. So what do you think recruiters in higher education need to know about them?
2: Uh, I love this question. And maybe my perspective will... Uh make people a little uncomfortable. But I love Ooh, Gen Z. I love it. Right. I love Gen Z. And and they frustrate me, but mm-hmm. to the point that I love it because they don't do cumbersome. One of the words I named when you asked at the start of this discussion was cumbersome. Gen Z is not loyal to you and they do mm-hmm. not do cumbersome processes. Everything mm-hmm. that we've done it to date, they they're not with it. They have no loyalty you they have options unlimited options they could make money sitting in a wherever off of their phones right the, the options in the sky is the limit they have a certain freedom that we can only only dream about right because we're so hard clung to our rules and processes and procedures and we we like the cumbersome it makes us feel good because we're accomplishing things gen z does not care about that so nope. their head and their heart and their work has to talk there, you know, if you're a religious person, sometimes people say that, you know, you might be spirit led. I really believe that Gen Z is very spirit You know, we, we, it makes me also think about Lauren Hill. You know, she has to have her mind together before she shows up. Her chakras up. aligned before she shows up. chakras on the got stage. to be together. You know, even if it takes seven hours, and the cops is over. It has to be together before she acts. Gen Z is a lot like that in that what it has to make sense. Why is this the process? what who said this had to be the process this whole thing is made up why can't we make up new rules they are captain Y, and i thought i was pretty you know i will ask why why what is the point why are we doing Like, like that's totally my my question but gen z has taken it next level so even in the way that i assign things i have to think about what is the application to their everyday life the work that they do it has to be meaningful this you know a lot of people complained about i'm thinking about um certain quote unquote essential workers I, that could be a whole other separate Ooh, episode <laughs> but a lot of my <laughs> students work in you know fast food or um service or customer service or you know uh, sales reps etc that we deemed essential right mm-hmm. and so I've anecdotally heard, you know, a lot of complaining about how fast food restaurants are slow, how, you know, the stores are never stopped and how there's a shortage of this and the shortage. And when you talk to them, they're like, I don't care about the job. Y'all don't care about me. I don't care about this job. Give me my check. I'm going home. Right. So there's no vested interest in who they are. It's more so about control and compliance and, and getting them to be who we want them to be. Um, so I would say to recruitment managers, if you're just coming with your basic job description and, you know, your company has a bunch of statements with no action, even if Gen Z is not able to name the things in the ways that you and I may be able to, they, the way that they move is communicating to you that something is off with this place, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got got to be prepared to answer all sorts of questions. Um, to reiterate things and to make it plain. And if you aren't able to answer those questions, you need to examine your processes. I will use them as a litmus test on what's working well and what isn't. If we aspire to the type of freedom that I hear people talk about all the time, I think that Gen Z will be the way.
1: Ooh, there it goes. I love that because so many people have so many negative things to say about new generations every single time. We as millennials, mm-hmm. we got a ton of flack, right? Well, um, I was just they, glad that
2: they came up with, because, you know, for the longest, it's just been millennial, millennial, millennial. And I'm like, millennials are approaching 40. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we girl, are over world. 40
1: at this point. Some of us are oh, over, yeah, over 40. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> like, like, know, we like, are not kids anymore. Nine, we are not children we were not born in 2001 or 2002 like like we've been out here for a little while so i'm first glad that they got their own name finally
1: (laughs) yeah right right like but i we always hear so many negative things about um up and coming generations and i'm really glad to hear positive things um you know i've recorded a a couple episodes i've talked to a couple people and literally it's so funny none of them have had anything negative to say about gen z all of us sort of think that gen z is sort of the impetus for change right they're going to be the 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 generation once again that's asking why that's poking holes um once again you know me i'm a a person who asks why i poke holes and everything too and gen z still got me shook so um you know i think it's i think it's absolutely great they they really do not they, they really love transparency. And if you aren't yes. transparent on what's going on, if they don't understand how it actually applies, then it's useless. They see uh-huh. through the bullshit smoke screen, right? And, they and we we really have to question why we have some of these things mm-hmm. in place or why we do the things we do. And we don't like to do that. And so Gen Z challenging us in that way, I think, is absolutely amazing. And we're going to see it across the board. And I think, you know, the industries, including hiring education that are incredibly slow to adapt, they're going to have a really hard time Mm -hmm. getting this talent and retaining this talent. And when they do get the talent, having them actually do something for them because they're the cultures at these institutions are not about that either. So um yeah I I completely agree. Use them at
2: that as that litmus test to see what's not and I think that makes me think about even college enrollment. Like we've had there's a steep decline. Um, particularly for black students enrolling in college since the start of the pandemic. But you know what has also increased is in en- room enrollment at HBCUs. So students are seeing, wait a minute, what's this college thing about? Why, why am I paying that like much for me to get to your campus and it'd be racist as hell, and I gotta deal with racist mm-hmm. professors, and I gotta, you know, if they go to a really big school, it's culture shock. If they go to a really small school, they're bored out of their minds, right? I would rather go somewhere where I would be celebrated, not tolerated. And it's not to say the HBCUs are just the perfect safe haven, but <laughs> at least I can go there and I can get a, a great education. I can be appreciated for who I am, how I show up. My and, and they're welcoming me with open arms and sort of you know embracing me like a family member versus just someone to pay tuition right mm-hmm. these are the type of decisions that the students so we we build that as you know they don't want to go to college no they don't want to go to your college like <laughs> let's be clear like mm-hmm. let's be clear <laughs> it's it's not that they don't want to go to college but and, and that's a whole again i could we could do like 18 spin-off episodes of this but this yeah. idea that black people don't pick, care about education is a crop of shit. right like it just yeah. it, it, black people value education you, you can walk down the street and you can have on a college hoodie and somebody's auntie is going to yell yeah. <laughs> to you about the hoodie. Like, we value yeah. education. It's not that Black students and Black people don't value and don't want to go to colleges. No, we don't want to go to your college and deal with your uh, racism, sexism, classism, bias, whatever words you want to use. We don't want to deal with that. So we're going to go where we where we will be appreciated. And so HBCUs are on the rise for that. That's all Gen Z. That's all mm-hmm. Gen Z. So mm-hmm. you know, thinking about change, their their decisions are inadvertently changing higher the higher education landscape, whether we like it or not.
1: Mm-hmm. And that means that higher education needs to hire people who understand that and can adapt to that to keep Absolutely. them relevant for the generation that is coming up. So, hundred percent, recruiters, you need to get on it um, mm-hmm. now. I want to take a little bit of a shift now. We've talked we talked quite a, few, a bit about questions, but I want to shift to a little bit of sort of uh, recent news or popular news when it comes to careers, and I always try to tailor it to the guests that we have, right? And so mm-hmm. I sent you an article from Forbes um, that was titled mm-hmm. The Prestige Hierarchy. Five universities oh. trained one out of eight Tenure, one out of every eight tenure-track faculty at doctoral universities, right? So I'm going to give a little introduction to this. So according to a new study, one in eight or 13.8% of U.S.-trained tenure-track faculty members employed at doctoral universities earned their Ph.D. from just five universities, the University of California, Berkeley, Harvard University, the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, go blue, Stanford University, <laughs> and the University of Wisconsin, Madison, right? Um, And so... This article was really sort of talking about how 20% of the PhD granting institutions in the United States awarded the doctoral degrees of 80% of tenure track US trained faculty members employed at major universities across the country. All right. So before I go in and say anything about what I think, what do you think about this? When you read this, what, what started coming to mind?
2: So I'm okay i was glad to see that i'm not crazy so like when i go into <laughs> i presented at international conferences conferences across the united states it is dominated by these quote-unquote elite research one institutions um but what i find and, and it's not is you know i don't mean to generalize but i'm just going to speak freely what i find is that it's all heady right there's no mm-hmm. there's all theory there's no practice there's no real connection. There's no real on the ground work. And so, you know, I think about where I, I got my doctorate from Eastern Michigan University. At one point, we were the largest producer of teachers in the United States. Like this was a huge teacher's college. Um, since then, things have changed dramatically, right? And when you look across all of these faculty positions, when you look at the postdoctoral fellowships, when you look at opportunities to travel to international conferences and study abroad, It is the same group all the time. If you go to use, even if you are whack, like just whack, whack, if you have a U of M or a UCLA or a University of Wisconsin Madison behind your name, you can float on by. You just can. It's the truth. And everyone knows it, which is why you have heard me say this a lot of times when people come to me, I want to get my doctor. I want to get my doctorate. And I'm like, okay. Do your research. Don't just go pick up any random doctorate from any random place because depending on your career goals, one, you might not even need it. But two, if you're trying to enter into, you know, these R, these research one institutions with a doctoral degree from somewhere that's not accredited, uh, not accredited I'm sorry, to break the news to you, it's not going to happen. It's not. Mm-hmm. Right? It's hard enough for people who go to accredited institutions that are research too, let alone non-accredited <laughs> institution. So that's something to think about. Um, But Mm -hmm. that article was really, really uh, sort of affirming in some ways Mm -hmm. to know that everybody comes from these same places. But then what does that mean for education if everyone thinks the same? If we've got Mm -hmm. all these people coming from the same programs, where is the differences in perspectives? Where is the knowledge? Mm -hmm. And then also the elephant in the room is these universities do not recruit. Well, black students, (laughs) they don't recruit Mm -hmm. black students. They'll have five black students on campus. So I have made a decision in my career to go where we are. So I stay at the state comprehensive institutions and I've worked at Research Ones. I've done it, I've seen it. I have partnerships with Research Ones. I know what happens there, but I also know that there is a larger concentration of black students that will go to comprehensive and community colleges, I know that. And so if all of us are aspiring to these same, you know, five institutions or whatever, then what does that mean for the students that go elsewhere? Who is there to assist them, right? Um, So we've got to make those kind of, we have to make those kind of choices in our careers because it's easy. Well, I, I say that loosely. It's easy to just go and aim for the elite places, but is it critical work? Right? Yeah. Is it work that's yeah. really going to move the needle? Those those are the that those are the questions that I ask. I don't really get impressed by accolades when I see someone is going mm-hmm. to Yale and they got a, a Spencer Fellowship. I'm like, duh! <laughs> like that's what they, this you is went to you. Yale, girl. Like you what the hell did you expect? Like duh! Like I'm, I'm not impressed by that. You know. And then what support structures are in place for you if you go to those places they've got the funding you don't have to work i had to work the entire time i had two fellowships and still worked right so people are making those sort of negotiations and the residual effects of students begin to measure themselves against those things right even oh, nice. f- employees you know if you got your 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 credentials from a university that's not an R one do you will you qualify to work at an R1 right Mm -hmm. people make those kind of negotiations all the time they won't even apply at places like a U of M or a Madison etc when we Mm -hmm. need your perspectives there too you know and so that article was was it it, kind of laid it just made it on plain for me (laughs) in ways that i've been yelling about for you know a long time now
1: yeah yeah it was it was a very interesting article for me because You know, they list those five institutions and, you know, I went to the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, love it to death, but, you know, it got its own issues. Um, Mm -hmm. we know how hard it is to get into those five institutions for anybody, first and foremost. But then what does that mean for black and brown people, right? We know that's incredibly hard for, for them to get into these organizations. And so if the majority of people are coming from the majority of tenure track faculty are coming from these five schools, we're automatically counting out black and brown people from these tenure track faculty roles immediately just based off of admission practices, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing that I thought, you you actually brought this up, right? It's not common for people to go to, um, you know, more or go work at more prestigious universities than where they received their doctoral degree. I think the article said, depending on the domain of study, anywhere from five to 23% of faculty employed at universities um, had were at more prestigious universities than their u- doctoral universities, mm-hmm. so only five to twenty three percent. So it's not something that happens often, which means we are not getting a diverse. Um, you, diverse opinion or thought when it comes to these things. Um, no. I also find it very interesting in this article that they, they talked about the gender effects, which absolutely are 100% important, mm-hmm. but one thing they never mentioned was race throughout this entire article and the well, impacts of that, which I found very, very mm-hmm. interesting. But then they decide to make statements like, professors who earned their graduate degrees from less prestigious schools leave the field more frequently than their peers who trained at more elite institutions. Mm-hmm. So, so essentially what you're saying is those at regional historically black and R2 universities usually leave the field, right? So That's what you're saying.
2: <laughs> that's what you're saying. And, while and, and, having, so while also having initiatives to recruit forty faculty of color over the next five years, right? So you push them out it, it, say, right, Wait, come back. Please wait, come, come back.
1: back. <laughs> but then we're going to treat you like shit because we think your degree isn't as prestigious it's, as ours. So, as yeah, I'm going to bring you in here, but now the faculty are just going to treat you like you don't know what you're doing, right? Um, it, another interesting concept, and I want to get your, your take on this, because we've been talking about sort of this diverse, and academic, thought, this diverse academic thought, right? Um, Mm-hmm. One of the things they talked about was sort of this idea of self-hire, which is really um faculty who are employed by their doctoral university after earning their degree. Um they also call it academic inbreeding, which I found to be a very off-putting. Yeah, yeah, I don't,
2: know why they don't like up. it. That's really <laughs> odd.
1: Um but um you know, basically, it, only about 1 in 11 of all U.S. professors were people who worked at institutions that they got their degree from. Uh, and I was started thinking, I was like, I get it, because you want to diversify the thought that comes in here. But we're not thinking about that in any other way. We're only thinking about Uh not having people who went to school here working here. But couldn't that in reality be a solution for minoritized people who want to be faculty? Couldn't their schools decide, hey, we're going to hire you. We're going to put you on a tenure track. We're going to make sure that you get a job. And then if you want to, and we actually encourage it for you to then find another job at a university. And now it's easier for them to get a tenure track role because they already have a tenure track role at the university that they went to school at. And so couldn't this, I was thinking, couldn't this be a solution to really help people who
2: are not represented in this space? Absolutely. I, I think you're pointing out one of the many contradictions in education, right? So on one hand, you we say, we, we emphasize when people, even an article kind of did this, we emphasize Mm -hmm. when people stay at the institutions they earn their doctorates from but we don't pay a lot of attention to that 20 percent number making up 80 percent right like we just kind of quickly go by that right like it is real quick so um but but the type of the type of um partnership that you talk that you're talking about is innovative and what education loves is to innovatively do the same thing right so like we (laughs) that's that's what it is we like to innovatively do the same thing if someone has a vested interest in your institution why not do everything that you can to keep them there that like why not we work hard to keep students at our well we could work harder to keep students at our institutions why don't we do the same thing for faculty and staff what yeah. what why, why is that so far-fetched you know um and then just the sort of uh, invested community um, aspects and and insight that that individual would have simply off their longevity you know we could really rethink this whole partnership thing because why isn't there a network you know why is it such a competition If education is supposed to be open and act accessible then why are we pegging it as competition we could have partnerships with these r1s that you know after a certain amount of years we can open up lines to people in the state and we could be thought partners across you know all these public institutions across the united across michigan right like we could think differently about this but again we're committed to doing the same things because people feel like they've worked it, it's like the student loan i paid off my student loan so i don't want it forgiven energy that's the same thing mm-hmm. here i earned my tenure i earned it no one helped me which is a lie but no one helped Mm -hmm. me get to where i'm at so i don't you know i don't support all of these you know initiatives to usher in people if they if they want to and this is i've been in meetings if they want to get into these jobs and they need to publish in the top journals and and they need to think about ways to, to partner and network and do their service. And you look at their publications they haven't published in 10 years. You still are signing the same article from 2012. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> like, like this 10 years old. <laughs> like, what, <laughs> this is, why are you still yeah. here? You know, yeah. you still saying cultural I, competence after all these years. Nobody says this anymore. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
0: dead.
2: Yeah, it, it's
1: just so interesting in it. And it the, the whole idea of that whole self-hire thing, I, like I said, I thought that could be a solution, but they, they also specifically said in the article, the researchers also found that sitting faculty are more likely to be self-hires, meaning that the people who've been here for years were people who went to this institution, got their degree from here, and then started working here. But now, all of a sudden, we don't want to academically inbreed Oh, right, that's what I experienced. Who, I wonder why.
2: That's what I experienced. So in my program, at the time when I started picking a dissertation committee and I'm looking at all of the faculty, many of them went to Eastern. But the message that I kept getting is you need to leave. One faculty member even said, not to my face, even said that I think he needs to leave and then come back to Eastern so he could see a different institution. I've been in education for a long time. Uh, he, this person has been at this institution, this one space for 23 years right mm-hmm. you, you've been here so maybe you need to leave and get some different perspective. but that's <laughs> i'm glad you didn't say that
1: to your face
2: <laughs> yeah it was <laughs> in his best that. interest not to say that <laughs> to me because it would have been bad news theirs but um a- another thing that that i wanted to to uh, bring up so that was one aspect is that i was getting that same message from people mm-hmm. who did that right like so there's this mm-hmm. sort of gatekeeping. thing but the other thing is that's so fascinating. You mentioned that there's no naming of race. Well, we know that black women are dominating everybody as far as education, right? Have the, the most educated group in the world, but certainly in the United States, the most hold the most credentials um, are completing degrees left and right. I mean, like like it's nobody's business, but are most likely to default on student loans, less likely to be in these tenure track positions, less likely to be, even if they get into these faculty roles, less likely to be heard in their their opinions and their work and their their insights valued, appreciated and respected, right? Like all of that is happening in that article, didn't name it. So if we're thinking about, you know, and, and going back to this whole recruiting part of it, you know, and of course I'm thinking about faculty and staff, but faculty is kind of heavily on my mind. If we're thinking about doing what's best in the interest of our candidates, how are we going to pay salaries that will combat those kind of issues how are we thinking about you know how our universities are situated in certain communities and what that means for what a black woman faculty member what they will experience coming to ann arbor ipsy urbana champagne right living in the middle of nowhere to work at your institution (laughs) you know like there's a lot of like our whole person comes with us you know some people can move Mm -hmm. freely throughout the world not us we got to think, we have to think about where we're gonna get our hair cut, you know? Like there's mm-hmm. stuff like, and hair done. If you, I was in San Diego, I was like, where's black people? <laughs> where do y'all get your right. hair done? Can't get nothing to eat. Like, where the hair store at? <laughs> I need some oils. Like, what am I going to do? Like, it's cold, <laughs> I need a jacket. I don't know what's going on, right? These are the questions that we ask before we enter into a space that they just never think about. So are you thinking holistically about your recruitment practices. And to date, the answer has been no. So people are going to make decisions that are best suited for their needs. Yeah.
1: yeah. You can't be surprised at no.
2: that. You can't be surprised at that.
1: Absolutely no. Because uh, most people in higher education firmly still believe that it's a straightforward meritocracy. And that <laughs> is a lie. That is bullshit. Right. Uh, this it article literally blows, literally
2: that, up. Like, this blows article that up. Right. This article literally blows that up. Like, come on
1: access to being a tenure track faculty member is influenced by socioeconomic status and institutional Absolutely. elitism, simply Absolutely. put. And that constrains the questions that people ask in their research and the bias that they bring to their research across the board. And so, uh-huh. um, yeah, I, I think this article really just sort of dragged the hell out of higher education. <laughs> you told them like, look, y'all not as academically diverse as you think you are. Y'all aren't uh-huh. actually asking the questions that you think you are. Y'all aren't actually assessing the data that you should be, right? Um, and I, I, I think that's no news to you or I, but um I think it's something that is good to enlighten other people about, right? This this podcast is geared toward the black and brown communities. Uh-huh. And and sometimes they're you know, people who are trying to get into those type of roles in and universities, they're sort of gaslit and sort of felt like they're yes. what's happening to them is not actually what's happening to them. And uh-huh. in reality it is. There's research is. out there to back it up, and I want y'all to know that you're not crazy. Like, no. there's a reason that it's hard for you to get to where you're trying to
2: go in those spaces. Mm-hmm. So, and look, it has nothing to do with your merit, your merit and abilities. You know, we start to internalize it like it's is something wrong with us. No, this system is screwed up, <laughs> and that's look, just what it is. I,
1: Look, if there's anything to tell you that I have more publications than some people who are tenure track faculty, and I well, yeah,
2: all I have is a bachelor's is. degree,
1: <laughs> so it has there nothing is. to do with your merit. Okay, mention, um, so back in the
2: day, not to mention back in the day, the tenure requirements were real lackluster, right? Like, like you didn't have to do too much of anything. These days, you have to damn near run a university out of your office in order to get tenure. Mm-hmm. So try again.
1: Look, we can have this conversation for hours. This is what we do. Um usually you know, I I lied to y'all at the beginning of the the first episode, told y'all twenty to thirty minute episodes. We're going on (laughs) minute forty (laughs) five here. Um, but, you know, this is such a good conversation. I always have great conversations with you, my friend. Um, I really, really, really appreciate you taking the time out to to do this with me. I know you're, you're a busy guy. You got to go teach in a few minutes and all those I things. Do. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you once again for all of your insight, your wisdom, and your time for coming on the podcast. And just let people know where they can find you on these internet streets. That's a funny question for you but let people know where they can find you on these internet streets
2: so i'll say thank you for for having me you know that i'm always down to talk about education so i'm blue in the face um i'm all on twitter and linkedin um my you can just search my name and you'll be able to find me fly burnett uh, my handle is at doctor CBIII I post all the time on LinkedIn articles and updates about what's going on. So feel free to connect, me, connect with me on those platforms.
1: Yes, yes. Make sure to connect with him. I'm telling you, he has some great ideas about education, challenging the status quo. Um, so go ahead and check it out. So once again, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And until next time,
0: everybody, we'll see you soon. Living Corporate is brought to you by Doximity. Doximity helps over 2 million medical professionals. We are the largest medical network that includes over 80% of physicians and over 50% of physician assistants and nurse practitioners. We don't take that responsibility lightly and committed to working towards a more equitable world inside and beyond our virtual office walls. If you want to learn more about Doximity, check out your app store at D-O-X-I-M-I-T-Y. That's ITY.